David Bowes. I've been here a long time. Um, I want to remind you that we'll be taking questions both from people here in the audience and from people uh, watching online. And the online audience may join the conversation and submit questions directly on the event page or on Facebook or YouTube or on Twitter using hashtag Cato events. And hopefully all of those questions will come uh, directly to me on this iPad. And if you are asking your question in here, please speak directly and clearly into the microphone so everybody can hear you here and online. A lot of my colleagues these days prefer to do uh, events in interview format, but I'm old fashioned and I think when an author has spent years becoming the world's leading expert on a topic, I'd rather give him a few minutes to tell us what he thinks is important about what he's discovered. So that's what we're going to do before we take questions, and we have two outstanding scholars to hear from. It would be presumptuous of me to say much about F.A. Hayek in the presence of Bruce Caldwell and Deirdre McCloskey, but I'll just set the stage a bit. Hayek is best known as a recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economics, um, or maybe as a distinguished senior fellow of the Cato Institute. <laughs> but I think that understates the depth and breadth of his scholarly work. Lawrence H. Summers called Hayek the author of the single most important thing to learn from an economics course today, and Milton Friedman described him as the most important social thinker of the 20th century. John Cassidy wrote in The New Yorker that on the biggest issue of all, the vitality of capitalism, he was vindicated to such an extent that it is hardly an exaggeration to refer to the 20th century as the Hayek century. I wrote a few years ago, Hayek was more than just an economist. He published impressive works on political theory, psychology, and the methodology of the social sciences. He's like Marx, only right. <laughs> and with that, I'll introduce our distinguished speakers and get off the stage or technically put down my microphone. Bruce Caldwell is research professor of economics at Duke University and director of the Center for the History of Political Economy. He may be the greatest living Hayek scholar. He has been the general editor of the collected works of F.A. Hayek, which has just been completed after more than 20 years. He is the author of Hayek's Challenge, an intellectual biography of F.A. Hayek. And he's here today because he is the co-author of the new full biography, Hayek, A Life, though it was a life of such accomplishment that this is only the first of two volumes. After he discusses the biography, we'll hear from Deirdre McCloskey. And speaking of interdisciplinary scholarship, Deirdre is the distinguished scholar Isaiah Berlin Chair in Liberal Thought at the Cato Institute and distinguished professor emerita of economics and of history and professor emerita of English and of communication at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She previously taught at the University of Chicago and the University of Iowa and she is the author of some 24 books, perhaps most notably her Bourgeois Trilogy, Bourgeois Virtue, Bourgeois Dignity, and Bourgeois Equality, and recently, Why Liberalism Works, How True Liberal Values Produce a fewer, Freer, More Equal, Prosperous World for All. Please welcome Bruce Caldwell.
Uh, David, I'm, I'm delighted to be here and delighted to be joined on the podium by my dear friend Deirdre. Um, so what to say uh, as introduction to this book, uh, I, I can't give you a summary of Hayek's life in 20 minutes, uh, given that the book took me 10 years to, to write. Uh, so what I thought I'd do is, is, is just start by, by, first of all, say, why do we need another book on Hayek? Because indeed, there are a number of other uh, works on Hayek, including one that, that, I, that I wrote myself. And I think the best way to explain this is um, I am the general editor of the collected works of Hayek. And I became that in 2002. I was invited by the second general editor, Stephen Kresge, to take over for him. And I said immediately, yes. I mean, this sounds like a wonderful opportunity to get to know more about this person whose work I was already quite interested in. And he said, well, but there's a catch. You'll have to be vetted and approved by the Hayek family. And I said, OK, OK, I, 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 can, I can be charming and persuasive, perhaps. Uh, we'll, we'll find out anyway. So I went to, to Devon in, in England, where uh, Larry Hayek had his home. And Christine Hayek, so his family uh, was his, his, his son and his daughter. Uh, uh, she lived in London, but she went down there to, to meet me. And I was just blown away by this, uh, this introduction to his actual family. Uh, Christine Hayek was, was immediately charmed me completely. I mean, she, she, I said, well, tell me something about your father. And, and she said, I barely knew the man. She, she rears back and she says, he was the professor in the study. And I said, oh, my goodness, no. But then she goes on and, of course, tells me lots and lots and lots of stories about her father and her interaction with her father and his interaction with people that, that she knew. And then um, she left, and Larry Hayek came to the house. And uh, we had an, another long conversation. And I actually spent the night there. They said, well, let's have dinner, and you spend the night here. And, and the next day, uh, he took me up to his study. And his study was filled with Hayekian memorabilia. I'll just give you a few examples. Uh, first of all, his skis. These are skis that no person who skis today would recognize as skis, basically. Uh, he was one of the first uh, skiing, of the type of downhill skiing that, that we think of as skiing, is, was kind of more or less invented. Uh, back at the time when he was a boy, and he just bought some skis of the type that would be available then, and uh, and and he got a manual, taught himself how to ski. Uh, that was one of the things. Uh, there was a photographic collection. I said, "What is this?" Well, when he was 16, he would accompany his father, who was who uh, was uh, a, a plant geographer. Would be kind of the way he would be described today. There wouldn't be a description back then. But he would he would accompany his father to various places in the uh, Austrian Alps uh, and, and surrounding areas and identify new species or what they thought were new species. And he would take photographs for his father. And each one of these was you know, carefully labeled, uh, put into, into place. There were a bunch of maps. And I said, well, what are these maps from? And I figured they, they were maps that he used when he was uh, either a skier. He was also a, an alpinist. He, he, he was a, a mountain climber. Uh, Turns out, I find out, no, these maps were the maps that he was using as an artillery officer during World War I on the Italian front. So these are all the maps that, that he had kept from that. So uh, there was also lots of intellectual sorts of materials in the library. And, and I just, uh, I, I, between the interaction with the people 
and the recognition that there was all this material that had not been incorporated. Yeah, I was an intellectual historian. Am an intellectual historian, but I had and I had never. Uh, I liked reading biographies, but I'd never attempted to would even think about t attempting to write one. Well, I was just so taken by the amount of material that was there, and uh, and their their openness and willingness to to talk about it, and it only got better. Uh, they shared um, lots of family correspondence with me. Uh, there's interesting stories behind each one of these things that I'll, I'll just mention in a sentence. Uh, uh, there were interviews that Bill Bartley, who was the first general editor, had done that his uh, partner Stephen Kresge gave me. Uh, there was Kresge's uh, own uh, materials that he released slowly but surely to me. Uh, uh, and I did interviews with Larry. He died in 2004, but I did multiple interviews with Christine, who became a, really, in a, in a sense, a close uh, a friend, uh, as well as someone who, was, who I was going to be writing about. Uh, one of my favorite uh, uh, times was we went to uh, Turner Close, which is where they lived for 20 years in London. It was in uh, a very, what's now a very nice uh, area. Uh, uh, near the uh, Hampstead Heath, Garden, uh, Hampstead Garden suburbs. Um, and she hadn't been there for 50 years. This is the place that she grew up as a child. She would point out, oh, well, you know, the trees have grown up, and there's a church over there that we used to be able to see the, the clock and know when it was time to come in. And just being there with her and asking her questions in that environment was, was very rich because she started to remember things that I think uh, probably would have been uh, difficult to remember if you just say, well, tell me about your childhood. You know? So we, uh, we have a, a, a lot of material. And what we, what we tried to do with the book was to make it both a biography, but also blending with that his intellectual contributions. So really putting, and as well as his institution building sorts of uh, uh, contribution. So we're we're really trying to cover the the entire map. That's why it's such a thick book. If you if you've seen it out there, um, and uh, the the emphasis would be first of all that his was a 20th century life. Uh, he grew up and 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 lived in extremely interesting times in terms of both what's going on in the world, but also what's going on in the economics profession. Uh, so he, he, he grew up in Van de Siecle, Austria. He fought in World War I. Uh, Americans always think of World War I as the, you know, the, the Western Front. Well, he, he fought on the Italian Front, where over a million people died. Uh, it was a, a fascinating to learn about uh, the, the various uh, uh, episodes that took place uh, during his war period. He got the Spanish flu. <laughs> uh, here we are in COVID times. They, uh, he survived it. He got malaria uh, and uh, gets back to Austria. The Austro-Hungarian Empire gets, uh, gets broken up. The Russian Revolution takes place. Uh, he sees fascism and anti-Semitism of various varieties emerging. Uh, in, in various uh, strange, uh, we have a whole chapter on varieties of anti-Semitism <laughs> that existed in Central Europe uh, during this period. I mean, it was, uh, you know, just doing this work, uh, I, I learned a lot, not all of which was very pleasant. Uh, but yeah, fascism's a Great Depression, World War II, uh, the, the, uh, the rise of the welfare state immediately following World War II. Um, all of these various episodes, and this is just in, in, in this volume one. Volume one uh, is 1899 to 1950. Uh, at 1950, he moved to the University of Chicago. 
close. Not quite so close, sorry. Um, so uh, we had one person who said, boy, I didn't realize he, he, he died so early. And I said, oh, no, it's just volume one. It's just volume <laughs> one. Um, so um, uh, the other thing that I, I wanted to emphasize is that we tried to place him in, in time and place and in the context of the people that he interacted with. One of the nice things about, about Hayek as a, as a figure to study is that he interacted with everyone. Uh, the Austrian School of Economics people, uh, people at the London School of Economics, uh, uh, Lionel Robbins, and a whole host of, of people who, uh, in Robbins' grand seminar in the 1930s, when, when Hayek was there, uh, this was, a, this was a, a place where a lot of the uh, the formalism of what we what's intermediate price theory and intermediate macroeconomics uh, was developed. So he was on hand when this stuff was being developed. Of course, there were his famous battles with the with various types of socialists, as well as with John Maynard Keynes in the 1930s. So we get to tell all of those stories um, at the Mont Pelerin Society, which he founded in 1947. Uh, he this brought together all of the liberals. All of the most famous liberals of the 20th century were, uh, most of them were at that meeting. And those who weren't were people who he, he had invited, but they weren't able to come, but ultimately became members. And just looking at the interactions of these people, one of the, one of the side projects that came out of this, doing this book, was another book that I, I did with the uh, Hoover Institution Press uh, on the very first meeting of the Mont Pelerin Society in 1947, uh, and it's a transcript of what took place at the meeting, not a verbatim transcript, but gives you a sense of the sorts of things that were being discussed at a very, very fraught time. I mean, Europe in 1947 was in, in horrible uh, uh, situation. It was still occupied. There was four zones of occupation through much of Europe uh, as, as they were trying to resolve what what was going to happen going forward. And that was the context in which they, they had this meeting, very important meeting, where they were saying, well, what, what would liberalism for the, the post-war 20th century look like? So I have so many things to say about Hayek, and what I should probably do at this point is just uh, shut up and uh, see if there's any questions it's, it, it, when we get to the Q&A, and that would probably be a better way to, uh, to deal with it. So thank you. Thank you, Bruce. Deirdre McCloskey. Well, I'll be brief, uh, but you've heard professors say that before. Um, <laughs> uh, that was a charming uh, vignette. I, I, I think that's, the, that's an excellent um, entryway to this, this fascinating book. I only came to Hayek very late in my academic career. I was, as so many people in the, in the, in the 20th century where I started as a socialist. The old joke is that if you're not a socialist when you're 16, you have no heart. If you're still a socialist at 26, you have no brain. And I just made it um, on both counts. But I, I didn't turn to Austrian economics as I th thought of Hayek as being, or understand 
much about him until really the 1990s, as late as that. Um, and the key point that I got from the book was what we mean by being a liberal. Bruce and I were, were, were talking earlier and we, we said we don't agree, we, we, we think we should take back the word liberal and perhaps put back on the shelf the word libertarian and surely neoliberal or ordo-liberal, those all need to go. We need to get back to the L word. <clears throat> and what's plain about Hayek is that he's not a man of dogma. I mean, he, he's accused of being a conservative, and he has a famous essay at, added on as an appendix to the Constitution of Liberty which is called Why I Am Not a Conservative. And he wasn't a conservative. A conservative would be someone who thinks about the known past and, and admires it and wants to get back or to hold on to some or all of its qualities. And a, a progressive or a, or a socialist is someone who looks forward to an imagined future. You often hear our friends, on, uh, our friends on the left, and I still have friends on the left, um, who say, well, you, I want to be on the right side of history. And they seem to know what the right side of history was. In the 1940s, at the end of this book, everyone thought that socialism was inevitable. And this tiny group around Hayek, and he was very much the heart of this, said, no, we think maybe there, there's, there's hope for, for saving a free society. So he was neither a conservative nor a progressive or a socialist. And that shows in his school career, in his university career. He, he founded a group when he was at, at the University of Vienna, which they called the, the, the Geistkreis. Everything in Vienna, all meetings were, were uh, Kreis, that is, uh, of circles. And their main principle was that they weren't going to choose between Catholics and Jews or Protestants. They weren't going to choose between socialists and, and conservatives. They weren't going to choose between Austrians and Germans or Austrians and whoever. They were going to admit and encourage in intellectual uh, uh, interaction anyone who didn't want to belong to one of those tribes. So it was against the tribalism, which is so vivid these days in our politics here in the United States, where you choose up your sports team and you're either a, a Dem or a GOP, a MAGA or a, or a socialist and you're rah, rah. And I think that's the core of modern liberalism. Since the 18th century when it came to be 
rather suddenly in, in France originally and then in, in, in Scotland and, and Britain and, and, and Holland in the 17th century. Um, the, the idea that neither, now here's the key point, neither a, a masterful state with central planning nor a self in, self in indulgent individual is how society works. Hayek's great discovery, or rediscovery, you might say, was the invisible hand of Adam Smith. It was that most of our institutions, most of our life, including our economic life, is in between. It's not macro or micro, it's meso. It's the spontaneous orders, as he would say, of human interaction, as in the German language, which is not planned by anyone. And I can't just say, well, no, I'm, I'm going to use the word Schwartz for Christ. I, no, Christ is, is the word. You're, you're stuck with it. Um, and, and most so social institutions. So the reason side of the French Enlightenment, or the, the the characteristically French side of the Enlightenment is the reason side. And he didn't believe in unaided human reason. And in that sense, that sense he shared with people like Edmund Burke, the conservative. But he also he also didn't believe in the corresponding French idea, Rousseau and so forth, that Private property is the problem, and we need to crush it and centrally plan. On the contrary, he believed all through his life in, in the liberty side of the Enlightenment, which, which you see in France, but is especially obvious in uh, Adam Smith and, and, and David Hume and others of the Scottish Enlightenment. So he, although I came to Hayek late, he's had a tremendous influence on me. And I highly re recommend this book because he'll have an influence on you. Thank you, Deirdre. Uh, we'll open the floor to questions now. As I said, online, you can submit questions in a variety of ways, Facebook, YouTube, hashtag Cato events, um, and here in the auditorium. Raise your hand and we will bring a microphone to you. Um, all right, right there in the back. Uh, thank you, Bert Ely. Um, before proposing my question, I just wanted to mention that I had the pleasure of the time that Hayek came to Cato. I don't know, I can't remember what year it was, David, but uh, uh, may have, probably not long before he died, but it was a real pleasure and I still think back to it, of hearing the man himself uh, speak as he did to Cato that day. Um, my question is, uh, is this, uh, to what extent did um, uh, Hayek get into monetary uh, manners and monetary theory in the banking system and finance? And just looking through the index, I didn't see any references to that, and I was wondering if, if that's something in the area he just didn't get into, or is it something that you'll address in the second book? 
Um, no, he actually started his intellectual career um, with a book called Monetary Theory in the Trade Cycle. So he interacted um, with Keynes on their respective models of, uh, of, of, you know, in, in Hayek's case, it was a, it was a theory of a capital-using monetary economy. And his major critique of Keynes was that Keynes had left out the capital theory. So um, his, his early work was in monetary theory. And if, if it's not clear from the uh, table of contents, it will be when you look at, at the sections on his work in the late 20s and the early 30s. He continued having an interest in that throughout the 1930s. And then he kind of moved into other areas, but he returned to this uh, in the 19, late 1960s and early 1970s. And, and he had, um, uh, as, as is, is often the case, he changed his mind through time. He originally was, was a great advocate in terms of policy, uh, a great advocate of the, of the gold standard. By the late 30s, he, he uh, moved away from that. Um, in the in the 60s, uh, he actually had a chapter on the monetary framework in the Constitution of Liberty, um, and by the 1970s, he changed his mind again and talked about uh, uh, you know competition against uh, the Fed as as possibly being something that you you want to countenance. Uh, his writings on money are often at at a very uh, high level. His early work is, is theoretical, so theory in this case means not mathematics, but um, models that are expressed uh, in words. And some of these papers are pretty difficult to follow. So we, you know, we, I think we put in, in, a, in an appendix some of the early work uh, kind of summarizing it. So, but it's there. You'll be able to find it. And it certainly was a theme throughout his, throughout his life. And speaking of what's in the book, let me just point out to the people who are here in the room that there are copies of the book for sale out there. Um, feel free to pick one up right now or when the event is concluded. Um, I believe Hayek lectured at Cato on our, in our Capitol Hill office in 1983. I think he came again for lunch in 1984, but that was a small lunch, not a public event. He was our first distinguished lecturer. When we found out Hayek was available to give a lecture, we said, well, we have to, we have to call it something. So we called it distinguished lecturer. And then we had a few more distinguished lecturers over the years before we decided that all of our lecturers were <laughs> distinguished enough. Yeah, that's, that sounds right. Um, okay, another question right here. Um, Hi, I'm Jorge Besada. Uh, is there anything else you can say about Hayek mentioning that he killed another soldier in hand-to-hand -hand combat? It seems to be mentioned almost by passing, and it's something that Hayek maybe didn't want to talk about too much, or is there anything else you can tell us about that? Uh, yes. So we do have a chapter on um, his war experience, and he was bored uh, through most of it. Uh, <laughs> that's that's the... the First thing to mention, he, he joined uh, the Army and made it to the front in November of 1917, right after the Austrian Army had had a big advance. 
and they advanced from the Isonzo River to the Piave River. And the Piave River is very wide and shallow, and the two lines just sat there through most of the time that he was uh, at the front. So he became really bored. Uh, there was nothing going on. Um, uh, he did have a trauma in that his, his closest friend, childhood friend, uh, he found out had died of dysentery. Uh, he himself was able to keep clear of any, a lot of people were dying of diseases uh, uh, in World War I as opposed to, to uh, military encounters. And so the only action he saw was right at the very end. Uh, and uh, he mentioned it to Bill Bartley in an interview, one of the interviews that Bartley shared with us, where he puts it in a way that is very, um, uh, yeah, it, was, it was a confusion of war, it was, uh, he thinks he may have uh, stabbed this guy, uh, uh, and, and that was it. He wasn't making any big deal about it. But I, Bartley was a bit of uh, someone who loved to tell a story, and he told the story to John Blundell, who also loves to tell a story. And, uh, and John Blundell reported on this in an IEA publication. Uh, and when I read that, I said, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like Hayek at all, the way it was being reported. Uh, the way that he reported it to Bartley was, I think, a better representation, which is he thinks he killed somebody. Okay? Um, but it was, a, you know, it, was a, it was a combat situation. So. And he, he described the guys. He was a little Italian, and Hayek was very tall. You know, so who kn who knows what happened? This is one of the wonderful things about doing a biography is trying to figure out these things. But it's all it, we do. We do uh, account for that particular uh, tale. I think we put it in a footnote recounting the bits about Bartley and Blundell. Let me bring the online audience in here. Um, I see two questions that are sort of similar, although it may turn out it's like five questions. But we'll. We'll see how that works. Um, an anonymous uh, emailer says, while writing this book, did you find something about Hayek that you thought was controversial, maybe a lot, or difficult to believe? And then Greg Ransom asks, what did you come across in the papers and archives that you looked through that most surprised you or most delighted you or was most exciting to discover? Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's going to be a lot. I'll be able to. I'll, I'll be able to say a lot of. We we discovered a lot of things that that I didn't know. So we do have quite an extensive coverage of his divorce, and I I knew that he got divorced. I didn't know the details, um, and that story is a sad story. It's a tragic story, uh, but that is certainly uh, uh, tr treated in in some depth. Um, but the, the sort of surprising and delightful things, um, one of them is something that Deirdre uh, referred to, his, his university. So he grew up in an anti-Semitic environment, and his own family, his birth family, um, his mother in particular, but also his father. His father was the head of a medical association that had an Aryan paragraph, which meant that they, they disallowed uh, Jewish members. Uh, his, his close friend, who he started the Geistkreis with, although he was a Lutheran, Herbert Firth was a Lutheran, his, his descent was, was Jewish. Uh, lots of people uh, uh, would, would uh, convert to some Protestant denomination in order to find employment if you were Jewish. Um, so uh, he was uh, his closest friend uh, in college, uh, in university, 
and they formed this, uh, this group, and the group was mostly Jewish people, and Hayek had not associated with Jewish people before. In a sense, it, it was a period when he discovered the Jewish intelligentsia of Vienna. Vienna is a big city, but it, it, in terms of the area in which they were interacting, it was a very small place. As Furt said later, everyone knew everyone else. And, but here was this whole group of people that because of his family background, he had not uh, interacted with, he started interacting with at university. And indeed, he, you know, he, he went against his family. His mother was disgusted by the fact that he was interacting with these people, these people. And Hyatt was just, these people are really smart. In fact, he, he, did, uh, he did some research to try to find out whether or not he was Jewish. You know, whether he had Jewish heritage, because he thought, I get along with these people. These are, these are great people. These are smart. They, they have knowledge of literatures that I have no knowledge of. Yeah, he, he grew up knowing the German uh, canon. But yeah, there's French and Italian and English literature. So that was, that was a delightful find. And he, his independence there of, of, just as you say, no dogma. He, 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 he investigates things and, and tries to figure them out on his own and, and comes to his own conclusions. Um, an, a, another example of, of something that, uh, this was a chapter that I, we, we uh, specialized in terms of division of labor. Adam Smith would have been proud. Um, uh, in terms of, of writing various chapters. And I did one on, on his visit to New York, which was a wonderful, uh, a, again, uh, uh, exploration to, 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 to undertake because New York, he went to New York in 1923-24 which is the middle of the Roaring Twenties. And it was, a, it was fascinating to do the research on, on trying to figure out the, the, the space that he was occupying at that particular point in time. And also his reactions to it, very much a, a, a standard Central European reaction to America uh, of, of his time. He, he came with a lot of preconceptions and he, and he wrote back home, and all of them are being reinforced, okay? He had a, a kind of almost a visceral uh, uh, reaction against uh, American culture uh, as, a, as an upper-class Central uh, European might. Um, but he also was learning so much there. So he attended Wesley Clare Mitchell's uh, uh, course. Uh, Mitchell was a, a leading American institutionalist. He was just about to become president of the American Economic Association. And, and he saw echoes in, in, in Mitchell's views of ideas that he thought were completely discredited. Uh, from the German historical school that the Austrian School of Economics had it as opponents. So he's, he's, he's learning from this guy, but he's also saying, how is it that the that views that we think have been, have already been refuted are suddenly, you know, very uh, taken, taken to be avant-garde almost, uh, uh, you know, the latest, the latest thing. And this started him on his, his ultimate project of uh, arguing against scientism, that, that you can get this kind of vision of planning society just like an enge engineer might plan a bridge. Uh, we can plan society in such a way, and the German historical school writers were German imperialists and conservatives. This is an American progressive, yet they're sharing this vision of what can be done with, to society by the experts. Uh, to make it a better place, and it was a vision that he that he found uh, uh, a dangerous one. Um, so, at the same time that he's reacting to American society, he's he's also thinking. He's going to the library every night, and he discovers uh, British liberalism in the readings that he did at the library. 
And he's also um, becoming fascinated by how news is reported. So he had fought in the war on the Austrian-German side. Um, he had a vision of what was going on in the war. He reads all of these other historical accounts and recognizes how biased the reporting was, not only in the types of, uh, you know, just the general impression that people had from about the war having been on, the, on that other side, uh, and, and recognizing the, uh, the carefulness with which these writers were, were uh, opposing what had taken place during the war that contradicted everything he knew. This was fascinating to him. Okay, and he actually started. Uh, he he came up with a project. Uh, he was always coming up with projects of having an international page in every newspaper that would have contributors for different countries reporting what they saw as the as what was going on. As kind of a, a way to balance against the the kind of jingoism that you get from just national reporting. So it was it 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 was so much fun to kind of put together his experiences of person plus his intellectual experiences in each one of these places. Because in each one of these places, he's dealing with different people, different sets of circumstances, different locations, and, and different ideas. And it's, uh, it was a fun trip. We have a lot of great questions coming in online. Um, do we have a question in here? All right, we'll take one more here. Thank you. David Sobelson, Washington, D.C. I have a question about your subtitle. I'm wondering what in, went into your decision as to have that particular subtitle and, for example, why you didn't include Part 1 or Chapter 1 or Volume 1. That was a recommendation by the University of Chicago Press, and I'm not sure um, we did we did talk about maybe doing saying volume one that is promising that there'll be a volume two number one and I could get hit by a truck as I go out the door so maybe there wouldn't be a volume two um, so maybe there was a worry about that or maybe there was also a worry that people would say well wait a second yeah volume one I don't know if I want but I, I I'm not sure they just I we we went to them and said what should we call this book because <laughs> we really didn't have a title uh, for the book and he said well it's Hayek a life. Boom. Yeah, the, the, it's, it's, I've uh, faced this myself. Publishers hate volume one, volume two. Oh, okay. They just hate it because then what happens is that the customers say, well, what do you mean? I got to commit to three volumes of this crap? You know, <laughs> no, I can't. And, and they won't buy the first volume. Um, all right, let me try some questions here. Um, several questions um, are along this line from Bruce. Eighty years after the publication of The Road to Serfdom, what would Hayek say today about the health of our liberal institutions and traditions to resist both authoritarian fascism and the reemergence of socialism? What would he advise us? So there used to be this bracelet that teenagers had. What would Jesus do? Okay, and this is kind of what would Hayek say? Is is an, another? It's one of those difficult questions because you're trying to take a person out of his time period and put him in ours, and figure out what he would say. 
So, uh, and particularly given the, the, the framing of that question, which was basically given all of the, 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 the tensions that we find in, in current uh, society. And I would just say, um, read the chapter on the formation of the Mont Pelerin Society in 1947, because we do, we do do the background as to what the world looked like then and uh, how horrible uh, things were uh, and what their response was to that. And if you look at the, at the, at the Mont Pelerin Society book and the 10 topics that they, that they discussed, every one of them uh, maps onto problems that we've got today, only I think they were more serious back then. And yeah, 1930s, it was the, it was the same sort of thing. We didn't have a, a recession. Uh, we had the Great Depression, for God's sakes. Um, so they were living through times that, in fact, were much more intense than the times that we live in today. Take a look at what they, his, his response to it was, let's see if we can, we, liberalism is everywhere under attack. I teach a course at Duke University, Liberalism and Its Critics. It looks at the history of liberalism and attacks on the left and the right throughout the last 150 years. It's always been under attack. Uh, and, and there's not a lot of originality, uh, frankly speaking, in, in, in the attacks that are taking place today. Uh, so that's one of the lessons of history. Uh, in the time period that they were existing in, they were responding to these, these same sorts of pressures. So I'll, I'll stop there. There was a sort of proto Mont Pelerin Society meeting in 1937, right? That's largely unknown. So in 1938, there was a, a, a meeting in Paris uh, called the Colloque Lippmann. Uh, Walter Lippmann had written a book called The Good Society. Hayek was quite enthusiastic about the book. Uh, here was a journalist, a famous American journalist, uh, I mean, really famous. This was the Walter Cronkite before Walter Cronkite. I, everyone read Lippmann and his opinion pieces. And he was arguing for a liberal vision, basically. And uh, so this meeting took place in 1938. Hayek uh, had a hand in arranging it. Uh, and uh, they met, uh, uh, von Mises was there, the number of the people, not, uh, actually there, there was less overlap than, than you would think of the people who were at the Colloque Lippmann and the Mont Pelerin Society, but it was very much a proto uh, Mont Pelerin Society sort of meeting because they too were saying, liberalism is everywhere under attack. Uh, what are, are its problems and what would a new liberalism look like? And uh, they formed a center that was going to carry that work forward, but this was in uh, 1938. And in 1939, uh, that was no longer on the table <laughs> with, this, with the start of World War II. So uh, the Mont Pelerin Society, in a sense, did uh, continue on the work that was kind of laid out in that, in that earlier meeting. There is a, ver uh, a transcript of that uh, uh, meeting as well that's available. Uh, and I, at least at my university, this is something that can be, this is a book that can be accessed, uh, accessible online. So it's... Uh, it's, it's quite interesting as well. Hayek attended it. Unfortunately, um, whoever was taking notes, the original transcript was in French, and then that was translated, and that's what the book is that's, that's available online. But um, 
high, uh, the, the, the person doing the translation didn't really understand people who were talking in English. So, uh, so there's not much of, of, of Hayek <laughs> there because Hayek talked in English. Um, uh, so, Emily Chamley Wright says Hayek's work deepens our understanding of institutions essential to free and prosperous societies. Nodding to Deirdre McCloskey's thesis on dignity as a driving force of the great enrichment, how would Hayek respond to that argument? So, so which argument? What? The, well, and, and specifically the change in attitude toward individual dignity and enterprise. Well, I, I think he would, um, and here he is, he's, he's good, he, he, like uh, Annie Hall, he's going to agree with me. Um, he's on the stage here. No, I, I think he would understand that uh, ground-up changes are what change the world, not so much top-down. I mean, institutions like an independent judiciary or a, or a parliament or something are, are, are necessary. But as the three Soviet constitutions show, they're not, they're not sufficient. And I, I was mu much influenced, as I said, by his contrast between the French Enlightenment and the Scottish Enlightenment. And in the Scottish Enlightenment, it was ground up, uh, which has to be based on, as David Hume famously said, moral sentiments uh, before theorizing. And the, and, the, uh, and the more French idea of top down. So in short, I think he would agree with my books and praise them. <laughs> you should put a blurb on it. <laughs> Attributed to F.A. Hayek. All right, here's a challenge, Bruce. Despite his claim of not being a conservative, isn't Hayek ultimately a man of the right? So... Um, the essay, Why I'm Not a Conservative, is the appendix to Hayek's 1960 book, The Constitution of Liberty. So why would Hayek say he's not a conservative? So the, the context for this is um, that, and, and he states, by the way, in, in the second or third paragraph, early on in that, in that uh, uh, epilogue, that in the American context, a conservative is someone who's returning to the founding, which was a liberal founding. So if you're going to be a conservative in the United States, it means you're being a liberal. Yeah. And we had a great uh, 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 colloquium with George Will, who, who made the same argument in a, in a, in a recent uh, book. So this is, that's, that's an important preface to why Hayek might um, write why I'm not a conservative. Excuse me. So what he was worried about was a different sort of conservatism, the sort of conservatism that might be associated with with various countries in Europe. That um, and and remember the 1950s, even in the United States, uh, was kind of when conservatism was 
being revived, okay, um, uh, William F. Buckley et al. Uh, and he had, Hayek had read Russell Kirk's book, A Conservative Mind, early on, uh, liked some of it and disliked other parts of it. And actually this essay started out as a, as a, uh, a paper that he delivered at, at a Montpeller and Society meeting. And Kirk um, uh, objected to it, so there was a, there was a little bit of a discussion that took place. This is in the 1950s, so you'll have to wait for Volume Two <laughs> uh, to get to this bit. But um, it it was a uh, it was a warning, in a sense, uh, to American readers that there's certain variants of conservatism that uh, believe in hierarchy that that are uh, that want to preserve. Uh, 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 property being very narrowly uh, owned uh, uh, that believes in natural law, which Hayek was not a, a particular uh, a advocate of and indeed a, an opponent of. Uh, <laughs> that's an interesting question that I won't, I won't go too far into uh, here, but he, you know, he, had, he had reservations about natural law theorizing uh, to justify uh, liberal institutions. So that was what he was opposing. And he was contrasting it with the dynamism and the openness of a, of, a, of, a, of a market society. And indeed, we see echoes of these sorts of debates taking place again today, where conservatives are saying, yeah, we like markets, but geez, you know, they're, it, they're, they're, if you have free markets, you're opening up society to all sorts of problems that we, we think perhaps we should constrain with the sort of government that we like uh, to be able to constrain it. Um, so, uh, again, these debates are... are well, you know, debates. You know I, I, on, this, on this theme of his anti-dogmatism, most people believe that the left-right spectrum, which I remind you comes from the seating plan of the French Assembly and is not a natural object, um, is, is all you need to know about politics. Either you're on the left or the right, and that's it. Whereas we liberals, including Hayek, float above that's, that left-right um, um, spectrum. The spectrum is devoted to deciding how the massive powers of the state shall be used against individuals. In the case of the left, economically, in the case of the right, all kinds of ways. And we say it's spinach and we say to hell with it. We, 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 we don't, we're not on the spectrum. And neither was he. Um, just to reinforce that, in that very essay, he does say left-right is wrong, that there should be a triangle. Yeah, the that's right. Is, is separate exactly. Floating above, there it is. It's at the apex. Here's a question that goes in a different direction. Cam Han Chu writes, if I am not wrong, Hayek admitted that his pure theory of capital was incomplete as a theory of capital and money. So far as you know, did Hayek leave any unpublished notes or writings regarding any potential further work on the topic? This is this is a, a wonderful story. So he he labored for seven years on a book called The Pure Theory of Capital, that was meant to be a two-volume work. Hayek was always projecting <laughs> multi-volume works, and 
at the end of seven years, he said he said in interviews he was happy that in this case that the war started because it kind of absolved him of the responsibility of having to do volume two because he he just sickened of this work. It was a real struggle. He was trying to do the, he was trained as a lawyer and he's trying to do pure theory. Uh, that's that's going to be tough. That's going to be tough to do. So. The last couple of chapters of the pure theory of capital actually kind of outline the direction he would have taken it uh, to integrate it with monetary theory. His plan was to, to do a full integration of capital theory with monetary theory. And he doesn't, he doesn't accomplish that, and he didn't try to, to, to continue with that work afterwards. What's, what's wonderful about the story is that probably his most famous piece is a paper called The Use of Knowledge in Society. Certainly among economists, this is his most famous piece. This is something that he whipped off in a matter of weeks when he was in Gibraltar uh, doing work for the British government in late 1944. His friend from the Geistkreis, Fritz Machlup, was in the United States, <clears throat> had become the associate editor of the American Economic Review, and said, look, Fritz, send me a paper. And Fritz said, ah. And he goes, okay. When he gets to Gibraltar, he decides he'd do it. And it basically, if you look at some of his earlier work, there's a, there's a little piece that he wrote for the Oxford Liberal Review, kind of a student paper, in 1941, 1942, that has the tin example. That is one of the, the famous examples of, of how a market coordinates uh, dispersed knowledge, okay, human action in a world of dispersed knowledge. He basically drew on earlier work and wrote something very quickly and it becomes his most famous paper versus the thing that he works on for seven years that doesn't go anywhere. And, and indeed, he, he writes a, a sardonic a, a letter to, to, to a friend. He says, I've been saying this stuff for 10 years, but it gets published in the American Economic Review and suddenly everybody thinks, oh, great, you know, I mean, so there we go, the academic life. Just one of many stories. Somebody writes. Okay. Um, all right, right here. Microphone's coming. Uh, I, be I believe uh, supply-side economics is often regarded as a modern Hayek theory uh, in many areas, so I wonder uh, how Hayek would evaluate the supply supply side economics uh, forged by Arthur Ruffer and adopted by Reagan and Trump. Thank you. I don't know. Do you want to try that? I'm not quite sure. Supply side economics would that be? Sure. The, the, the idea that there's a supply side in the economy is something that was basically forgotten by Keynesians. Um, some of my early work, some of my early historical work was saying, now wait a second, British economic growth can't all be about demand. <laughs> there are resources and resource constraints and you know, free lunches. So I think he would approve of that part of it. I don't think he would have approved of my friend uh, Arthur Laffer's sort of casual attitude towards um, decreasing uh, taxes.
Hayek would have come of age during this huge hyperinflation after World War I in, in Germany. And I guess the response of uh, the German and Austrian governments, they owed, they owed reparations coming out of the Dawes plan, and they went to Wall Street to finance this, and it ultimately, I guess, uh, gets complicated with the Depression. But anyway, how aware was Hayek of what was going on when he was uh, with, with this whole thing, and, and what impact did it have on his theories? So um, if we wanted to draw the, the simplest uh, uh, contrast between Hayek and Keynes is that Hayek lived through the hyperinflation, whereas Keynes lived in uh, an England after World War I that was beset by high levels of unemployment uh, for the decade preceding uh, uh, the Great Depression. So, so the sorts of concerns that they brought to their theorizing, I think, very much reflected uh, those two different experiences. In terms of his personal experiences, he, he worked at a temporary government office, uh, and he, he got that employment before the Austrian hyperinflation took off. It wasn't as bad as the German one, but it was pretty bad. And, and his, his salary was protected, but in terms of, of virtually everyone he knew and his family members, uh, yeah, they were, their, their savings were decimated by the hyperinflation. Uh, you know, savings just, it, it, that's, those are the losers <laughs> during a hyperinflation, anyone who had any kind of savings. And, and yeah, the, the, the impact that hyperinflation had in, in both uh, Austria and Germany in terms of, of exacerbating the tensions, the class tensions uh, that, that already existed uh, were everywhere evident. So it was, it was a really important part of, of his intellectual formation. Um, he, he always had a sardonic and, uh, wit about him. So he said, I, I, in one of his letters home in 1923-24 when he was in New York, he said, I would ask you to send me a, a million crown note, but I don't have a penny. I don't, they, don't, they don't allow us to split something less than a penny. So it was, it was something along those lines, which I thought was pretty good. Over here. Thank you very much. Um, as, a, as you said, an intel, uh, intellectual biographer, I'd be curious to know um, Hayek in his early adulthood and at university, how his ideas were influenced by things like the Vienna um, Psychoanalytic Society, by some of the philosophy that was going on in Vienna at the time, like Wittgenstein, and the sort of overall Vienna secessionist aesthetics too. How did that influence his thought, both in terms of the, the things he wrote about psychology, which he did, and then how that went on to influence himself, him as an Austrian economist? So, right. Um, he grew up in a family of scientists, uh, mostly uh, natural scientists, but he did write, uh, he did have an early interest in psychology. Uh, it was, uh, he wrote a, a paper that uh, was challenging some of Ernst Mach's views about sensations. Uh, this is something that later grew into his 1952 book, The Sensory Order. So this was a long-lasting interest that he had. Um, he got to the London School of Economics in the early 1930s 
and everyone said, oh, you're from Vienna? What do you think about Freud? And, and, <laughs> and he thought that Freud was a fraud, basically. I mean, he had the same sort of uh, uh, valuation that Karl Popper had, that if you can't, if you're, if you're saying that you're explaining everything with something that can't be tested, then it, it's not really science. And indeed, he had, he, he had the opportunity to meet Freud when Freud went to London. He, you know, he escaped the nick of time from Vienna and about a year later died, but, but had come to the London School of Economics and everyone was fawning over him. And Hayek just, eh, he, he declined to even meet him. So um, he, he was, Vienna, as I said before, Vienna intellectually was a very small place. So he was, if, if it was an intellectual movement, he was aware of it. Wittgenstein's, Ludwig Wittgenstein was a, was a second cousin to his mother. Um, so they were related, uh, and, and they interacted to some extent. Uh, him less so when he was in Vienna, uh, more when, when uh, they were both together in Cambridge during the war. This viewer says, I was a business student at the University of Chicago before Professor McCloskey was there. There was no mention of Austrian economics and definitely not Hayek. Are Hayek and Austrian contributions to economics being covered more these days? No. And it's, it's very strange. I was, I was on the faculty at the University of Chicago for 12 years. And Hayek's, no, not Hayek's, Israel Kersner's books were being published by the University of Chicago Press. And they keep being remaindered. <laughs> so I bought copies of them because they were cheap. But I didn't read them very carefully. And, and the, it's very strange, and may, maybe Bruce can shed, shed light on it. There was a kind of contempt for Austrian economics among the Chicago School economists, um, symbolized by the failure of the Department of Economics to hire this guy when they had a chance. He was instead upstairs in the Committee on Social Thought. Yeah, so again, it's an interesting story. Um, Hayek's name had been proposed to the uh, Department of Economics back in 46, but the people that they ended up considering, and that was the year ultimately that they hired Milton Friedman, but some of the people who were also being considered for the positions that, were, that had opened up um, if you look at them, they were doing theory of the sort that an economist today would view as real theory. Yeah. Yeah, mathematical. Mathematical. Modeling. And, and so um, at the same time, at Chicago, there was a group called the Coles Commission, mm -hmm. and they were very mathematical. They, they were. Basically, this is the, the group that took, took it beyond intermediate price theory and macroeconomics. To the, to the stuff that you would get in, in grad school. And they were all there in the, in the 1950s. And what's fascinating, this is gonna be again in volume two, but the chapter that I've been working on recently is a wonderful seminar that Hayek put together in the 52-53 academic year in which he had people like Frank Knight, he had Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman actually gave an early version prior to publication of the methodology of uh, positive, positive economics, economics the mm -hmm. paper that that became kind of the 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 statement of of uh, of in in Hayek's view anyway uh, the the positivist mistakes yeah. of, of 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 the Chicago school so there there's so there was always a tension there 
in terms of methodology, uh, certainly between uh, Friedman's vision and, and Hayek's vision. Hayek thought that testing was important, but falsification was very difficult, and that, that uh, you know, you're not going to have the kind of cumulative uh, progress in economic theory that was held out as, as being possible, uh, particularly in the 1950s. That was a very... Uh, that was a very optimistic age about what economics was going to be able to accomplish. I was there. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was thinking about this question about, you know, do you learn about Hayek and Austrian economics in college classes? Would it be fair to say that in physics classes today, you don't learn about Euclid or Newton, you learn today's state-of-the-art physics as the professor and the textbook understand it, and that in economics classes, you don't study Smith and Marshall and Hayek, you study state-of-the-art understanding of economics. Yeah, as but it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a grave mistake in, in a lot of fields. Um, in my other field of history, it's a mistake. But it's certainly a mistake in economics. Bob Lucas, another Nobel Prize winner, in his graduate macroeconomics course at the University of Chicago, he announces on the first day, we're not gonna do any articles older than five years. And so I've heard PhD graduates of the University of Chicago speak of this person, John Maynard Keynes, they don't know how to pronounce Keynes. And Hayek, they've never heard of. So, and a long time ago, Axel Lanhoofoot, a, a great economist, pointed out in, in the history of thought that the, the, the advantage of a field like economics is that if you reach a dead end, you can go back down the tree of knowledge and find where you went wrong. So there, there's a kind of crazy arrogance about this, we'll just do the last five years of papers. Let's wrap this up here with, um, well, I'll give you a final question, but if you have final thoughts that you want to expand into, you can. Um, can you talk about, or did you find out anything interesting about the relationship between Hayek and Karl Popper? Yes, um, I'll, I'll give you a, a, an abbreviated summary. It's a wonderful relationship and it continued on until uh, their deaths. So this is a, a long-term relationship. But Popper uh, is an Austrian philosopher of science, uh, often associated with the doctrine of falsificationism, that, that scientific theories make, uh, make falsifiable hypotheses and that, that is a constant uh, challenge of, uh, of scientific reasoning is is that you you want to put out claims that can be proven wrong by by the evidence. That's what science does. That's what makes it different from theology. One could draw that kind of contrast. So, or Freud or Marx, who are making open-ended predict. Well, the revolution is supposed to come, right? It hasn't come yet. Well. You just got to give it more time, okay? That that that's not. It, it pretends to be science, but it's not really science. Um, so, <clears throat> Popper gives a paper at Hayek's seminar. They didn't know each other in Vienna, but Hayek had learned about Popper's work from his friend Habeler, who was in Vienna. 
He said, you should have this guy in for your seminar. Gives his, his, his seminar, they meet each other, and then there's some little correspondence, but Hayek ends up, uh, I'm sorry, Popper ends up going to New Zealand. Uh, he had to get out of Vienna. Uh, many of his relatives ended up dead. Uh, you know, he was, he was Jewish. Um, so he, he gets to New Zealand, and then in the middle of World War II, they start up a correspondence. And part of the correspondence is Popper saying, desperately, please get me out of this place, okay? That they, they don't care about research here. Uh, they, they don't have a library of any sort. Uh, I'm, I'm dying intellectually here. Please help me, help me. Um, and independent of that, they're both writing on basically historicism and its problems, okay? Uh, and, and scientism, and it's, they both have a similar view of what's wrong in the social sciences, but Popper's coming from a philosopher's point of view, and Hayek is coming at it from the view of someone who knows the writings in the social sciences. So they both recognize each other as somebody who can help them develop their arguments further. So this becomes a very rich conversation that, you know, you send a letter and four months later you get, you get a response. Um, so one of the in, interesting, I'll, I'll, I'll finish with this, this final episode. One of the interesting things that I learned was that the poverty of, of historicism, which is Popper's little book, the first half of it doesn't match up very well with the second half of it, and I never understood why that was true. When I read this correspondence, I suddenly realized why it was true. Um, Hayek offered to publish the paper in three parts in the journal Economica, which is published at the London School of Economics. Um, in the, so Popper sends in the first third, and then gets a number of pieces from Hayek that is on similar topics, and he realizes that what he's going to say in the second and third part, he needs to revise it. So it's more consistent with what Hayek is saying, because Hayek is basically giving him a, an opportunity to express himself in a, in a major journal. So he, he modifies slightly the way he put things, but it really destroyed the, the overall, overall con coherence of, of the piece. In the end, um, Hayek is instrumental in helping Popper come to the London School of Economics, which is where he taught uh, for the rest of his life. So uh, Popper was always very uh, appreciative of, of Hayek's efforts on his behalf, not only to, to get his work published, but also to help him uh, uh, find a, a position that was not that was not in New Zealand. Now, I, 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 I've never been to New Zealand. I don't know whether his claims were accurate about that. But anyway, that was that's the story. All right. Thank you, Deirdre McCloskey. Thank you, Bruce Caldwell. Uh,